What I hope to do now is to help you in thinking about the Bible. So Genesis 37 is where we're going to be. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to follow along and to look at it. Uh, again, the, the crunching of pages, a place to make a little note or jot a little something or underline for emphasis, I believe is a good thing. So if you have a Bible with you, that would be fantastic. Uh, if you follow along on, uh, online or electronic, of course, now would be the time to pull that out and take a peek at it. Let me give you an overview of us starting into Genesis 37. Genesis 37 starts an emphasis on the life of Joseph, an emphasis on the life of Joseph. And this turning point or this transition point, I really think, is a narrative transition point in the whole of Genesis. So when you try to think about, well, there's 50 chapters in Genesis, and what story does it tell, and how does it break down? We've attempted over the last four weeks to give you an overview of what we believe would be faithful, uh, a faithful idea of the different emphasis or emphases that come through the book. So we started out a long time ago, a year plus ago, in Genesis chapter 1, and we called that sermon series, the emphasis we had, foundations. The idea that the biggest questions of where we came from and who is God and is He good and is He for us and what's wrong with you and what's wrong with me and what's wrong with this place and all that we see are their answers to these questions. And I believe that Genesis 1 through 11 is really the sort of prehistory, pre-patriarchal history that answers most of those questions. And so that's a bit of a narrative chunk, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And then we see, starting in chapter 12, 12 through 26, a focus and an emphasis on Abraham, and then because he's longing for a child, his son Isaac. It's the Abraham and Isaac portion of Genesis. And what we see there is an emphasis on the idea that God is a promising God. He makes covenants. That's what they're called in, in the pages of our Bible. And really, the, the language says that God cuts covenants, sometimes literally with blood. And that's good news for us, because what we see is that God reveals Himself to be the kind of God that loves to bind Himself to, him, to His promises and to His people. And then the rest of the story of the Bible is Him living out the relentless pursuit of those covenants. He never gives up. He cannot lie. He cannot change. And that's what we find in the chapters, more or less, 12 to 26, the introduction of the way that He makes covenants. It's not the only place they're there, but it doubles down. And then last week, we considered the life of Jacob. So Jacob, as you recall, is born a twin. He's the younger twin. He comes out grasping the heels. And what we see is that it's in the life of Jacob that this promise of nations coming of God, working out redemption through the life of this family that will become nations, and eventually all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see it most come to fruition, early on at least, in the life of Jacob, who in a roundabout way ends up having at least two wives, Leah first, and then Rachel, and then has 12 sons of prominence through a variety of circumstances. And it's those big chunks then, those three chunks that lead us here to the 37th chapter where we're going to start to talk about Joseph. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Or I'm, I guess I'm telling you it's interesting, but you'll be the judge of that. Joseph, as a son of Jacob, comes into full view, and the next 13 chapters really focus on him. He steps to the forefront. He has the most lines. It's about his story. But unlike previous circumstances, if you ask me why does the Bible shift from Abraham and Isaac to Jacob, well, partly there's an obvious answer. And you know what the answer is? Because those other people died. 
And it's the end of their story. What's unique here is that the, the lens shifts to Joseph even though Jacob is still alive. Jacob survives, if you want to say it that way, all of Genesis. But the way that God is going to work in Jacob's life, uniquely through Joseph, it's as though the Bible says something like this, for me to tell you the full story of Jacob and to tell you how does God protect and eventually usher in the nation of Israel, in order to tell Jacob's story, the Bible pauses and says, let's slow down and let's zoom in on Joseph. I'm going to make some assumptions as I start here. Many of you probably know this story. This is a detailed, really adventurous, sometimes suspenseful story. It's full of relatable, but also treacherous and surprising details. It's a story that has family intrigue, jealousy, betrayal, threats of violence, real violence, poverty, wealth, power, romantic intrigue, all of the elements of human life, the things that we experience in many ways are here in these chapters. But more than that, and what I want to say at the outset, more than that, what we're going to find in these chapters is perhaps the most explicit description in the Bible of a God who works underneath and beyond and through circumstances. And this is the key. We, we know that God's been working, but He worked in a very obvious way. In Genesis chapters... <laughs> Sorry. I think it's just the wind. In Genesis 1 and 2... And then in three, as he's walking with them in the punishment for sin, God's acting in circumstances, but he's doing so in a very obvious way. The thing that will be more difficult and the way that our faith needs to deepen is that we're going to see in Genesis 37 through the rest of the book that God is no less active. He's no less working. He's no less in control, but we don't see him in the same way will be called to a faith that says, when I don't understand and when I don't see, and sometimes even when bad things happen, is God still in control? That's the question that's going to be pressed of our faith. So I'm going to begin reading, and I'm going to read down through verse 11 of Genesis 37. We're going to pray and pause there, and then try to work our way through the chapter. But I would love for you to follow along with me. Let's Pay attention now and gird up our, our hearts and our minds to dive into the Bible in a way that's commensurate with our confession concerning the Bible. What we say, what Christians down through the ages have said, what we trust in and what we rely on is the fact that this is the very Word of God for us. So I'm going to read it, and I'd love for us to, to trust that the Spirit will move us to, to listen well. Genesis 31, or 37, the first verse. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. 
Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let me, let me pray. God, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for the gift of your church. Thank you that we can come here in peace and with the promise, the assurance that you're here with us. Your spirit indwells us. The promises that we've been given in Jesus are ours forever. We thank you for never changing Everything that you've ever been, you are now, and you will be. God, I ask that these truths concerning you, the the things that have led us to praise you, that they would shape us and form us most on a day like this. I pray as well, God, that the words of the Bible, the Genesis 37, the part that we've just read, and as we consider this chapter together, we need your help. I pray, God, that I could be an encouragement, that I could aid your people in understanding the Bible, and then beyond that, Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, would you come and apply the Scripture in a way that only you can. Take from Jesus and give to us. Show us your character in a unique way. Build in us a kind of faith that's going to sustain us when things are difficult. All of the lasting good things. Any hope, any change is going to have to come from you. So God, we submit ourselves to you. We want to be like Jesus and we pray in his name. Amen. I said this story is about Joseph and so I want to describe what's, what's given to us here. We want to get a little bit of a background, a little bit of an idea, a character sketch, if you will, of Joseph. And what we see, honestly, here in Genesis 37 continues a pattern that we've seen with all of the heroes so far of the Bible. You know, Jacob was stunningly not perfect. Sinful in a ton of ways. We're reminded of it here again, where he has children of some of his wives. And if you're an astute Bible observer, you may say something like, what now? These people are not described in the Bible because they are sinless and perfect, the Bible from start to finish is not a constant barrage of moral imperatives saying, do this and be this. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean go and do likewise. Sometimes it's there to remind us that it's God's grace that carries along the story. And Joseph, from the beginning, though it's not 
he's going to get better. In fact, I would say of all the characters, Joseph is perhaps the most commendable. But there's a few things that we can see from the beginning. Here's the first one. He's 17 years old. We know that he is the youngest, and soon we're going to find out the most favored of the children of Jacob. Joseph is born finally in his old age because Rachel, his preferred wife, and I know this sounds crazy, but this is humanity. This is our fallenness, so just bear with me. Rachel, more or less his preferred wife, who is unable to have children, though Jacob has 11 prominent sons prior to this, it is Joseph who is born to Jacob in his old age, essentially as an answer to prayer. It tells us earlier in Genesis that God visited Rachel and opened her womb, and finally they received this child. And it is Joseph who is loved in a particular way. And it seems to me, and I don't think we're reading between the lines here, but it seems to me as though he has learned that he is loved. He leverages in a certain way. Can you imagine the baby of the family, the preferred one, who then also knows that they're the baby of the family and the preferred one? I mean, maybe this didn't happen in your family, but can you just imagine it? Maybe right now you feel judged personally because you are this one. But that's the dynamic that introduced at the beginning, and here's where we get some of this. If we had to have some quibble with Joseph and his character, it's interesting that what he's introduced first doing, I think this is to build the conflict between him and his brothers. These are his half-brothers, the sons of these two. The first thing we learn of Joseph is him tattling. He runs back to Jacob, and these other people are doing something in the fields probably that's going to harm Jacob's name or his bottom line. And Joseph is the one that runs to dad. I just want you to know, here's the bad things that the bad boys are doing. But don't you love me, your good boy, for telling you? That's the spirit it seems like is being presented. And I think we're going to get that later because the brothers say they hated his dreams, but also his words, the way that he said it. Joseph is introduced to us directly in the turmoil and the conflict and the dysfunction that comes as the natural consequence of sin. Joseph is born into a family of half-brothers with conflicting and rivalrous wives of Jacob. And all of this conflict has been under the surface for years. The mothers, the wives, try to outdo one another and jockey for position and are jealous of one another. The brothers are fighting and competing, as young men do, but also for the affection and love of their father. And Joseph just happens to be the winner of all of these dysfunctional family circumstances. He's as much of a true heir as you could get, at least in Jacob and Rachel's eyes. He also has their ear and brings them bad reports from the others. Now, it tells us in a shocking way almost in verse 3 that Israel... Loved Joseph more than any of the other of his sons and made him a robe of many colors. This is just another instance where the Bible doesn't pull any punches. It just says flat out. And I think we're to read this and to realize that this isn't a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing for a father to ever say out loud, I love one of you more than the others. I do want to say right up front, though, I don't think we should judge too harshly for a number of reasons. The first and foremost reason, though, is because I believe that in any family circumstance, the ability of parents, a mom or a dad in their marriage together, trying to figure things out, 
and then amongst sibling groups, the reality is, is that our hearts and our minds and our preferences are often a lot more imperceptible to us than we are willing to let on. So the idea that someone could declare openly at any given time, I love all of my children equally and forever and treat them perfectly the same no matter what, even from the depths of my heart, I just think it's probably an either naive or a lie. And I think we all know that even though you're a family, and yes, of course, the love and affection and commitment is going to be the same, there's just sometimes where someone is more annoying than the other. And parents, our parents are trying to deal with how do I introduce my children to real life and to faith and to God, and, and sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's harder. And holding together a family dynamic is a lot more difficult than we think sometimes. So I don't want to turn Genesis 37 into a moral command to say, do you see how bad Jacob is? Can you believe it? He allowed favoritism in his family. My guess is that no matter the family, there's always some sort of range of trying to keep these things in tension. And the best of parents oftentimes probably pray through and say, God, help me to be faithful and to love as best and as deeply as I can in the circumstances to each unique child. However, I will say there's another part of this that makes me scratch my head and say, okay, I get it and I'll give grace for a change of motives or whatever it is. But this is something that Jacob does or Israel does that I will not understand. He has a favorite, makes it evident, and then to make it evident, he gives him a massive, wonderful, expensive, bright colored coat. You know how in high school football, if you're, or college, I suppose, I figure we're in a college town too. You guys know college football is played in this town? So in this, you know, in football, like your QB1, you get to wear like a special jersey. In other words, don't touch me in practice. You know, this like, you're like, get privileges if you're QB1. What Jacob ends up doing is essentially amongst all of his sons, in all of their rivalry, he gives them the most expensive piece of clothing in the whole family and says, here, wear this so everyone knows. It's as though you went to one of your children in the midst of school shopping and had half of your children, oh man, now I'm going to, had half of your children, whatever you view as a lesser bit of, I don't know what the clothing is that's cool and I don't want to insult any families and so it's going to be hard to say. Let me just try to be hip on the other side. It's as though a parent says only one child gets the Gucci stuff. Is that cool now? I don't know. It's as if only one child here, everyone else gets normal plain t-shirts. You get the coolest and hippest supreme thing. Am I with it, Colin? Am I with it, right? Like you get, I spent hours at an open on eBay or something, and I got this just for you. This is just unwise and wrong. And I would say, given the circumstances of the family and all the tensions that exist, just downright explosive. Joseph and the coat of many colors that sets him apart as the object of disdain and eventually violence from his brothers. So imagine the scenario. Eleven prominent sons, the twelfth is born, he's kind of favored. He maybe plays into the favoritism a little bit. Then to make it obvious, the father says, here, take this wonderfully expensive, awesome coat so we always know which one of it's as though he says, here, I want you to wear this one so I'm always easily reminded which one of you is best. 
And it's into that circumstance that Joseph begins to have dreams. Joseph has dreams, and now dreams we're not meant to be suspicious of. In fact, Genesis so far has taught us that many times God comes in his presence, especially to Jacob, in dreams. So Joseph has a dream. We don't know yet if it's of God or not. God so far is conspicuously absent. But he has this dream, and if he was aware at all of the tension in his family, it doesn't come across very clearly because in the midst of his dream, he has a vision of sheaves in the field. And it seems very obvious. You don't have to be a Bible interpreter to realize the meaning of his dream. In his dream, he sees himself stand up and all of the rest of them bow down. He interprets this, I believe rightly, but it's going to take a little of interpretation. He interprets this rightly as his brothers bowing down to him. Now, perhaps an older, wiser Joseph would look back and say, maybe I shouldn't have told my brothers about this in this way. But it's as though he wakes up in the morning and says, everyone, I have great news. Stop what you're doing. Gather around. He starts the fire. He takes center stage, clears his throat, and then joyfully tells them the story of their submission to him. And the Bible tells us they hated him even more, not only for his dreams, but for his words. Again, I think that what Scripture is trying to paint a picture for here is that Joseph is a little bit of a braggart in the midst of his description. He dreams another dream. He tells it to a brother, except in this one, it's even further. He views himself as being more important than the moon and the sun and 11 stars, the brothers and the husband and the wife. And in this response, the father even rebukes him and says, Sir, shall we bow down on the ground before you? So the brothers double down on their jealousy. And then we get this line that is the first indication for us. Though so far the circumstances seem extreme and out of the ordinary, if not maybe just a little bit of a on-steroids version of a lot of family dysfunction we're used to, this is the first little phrase that allows us or gives us the peak. It's the first pullback of the curtain that shows us, wait, God might be up to something. We should pay attention. We get the line at the end that Jacob, his father, kept the saying in mind. I think for many of us, maybe it brings to mind the idea of what Mary does when told that she's going to be with child as a virgin. It says that she stores these things up. She ponders them in her heart. And it's that little phrase, that little idea, that concept that leads us in to the rest of the story. And just a spoiler already, it doesn't get better from here. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12 of Genesis 37. Genesis 37, verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's... pastor their father... pastor. See how much my self-projection comes in all the time? His brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. 
The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up out and lifted him out of the pit, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Chapter 37 ends with a line that is serving the similar purpose to the end of chapter 11. It makes us go, hmm, and it gives us a detail that could seem inconsequential, but if you know the rest of the story, means everything. What happens here in Genesis 37, there is no two ways about it, is a travesty. It is a terrible bit of treachery and betrayal. I think it's doubled down upon by the constant dozens of uses of the word brother. Brother, brothers, brother, brothers, brothers. As if to enforce, in a literary kind of way, as if to enforce, who was it that betrayed Joseph? His brothers. Although the use of brothers, of course, is nearly sinister in some ways. It is Joseph who is seeking his brothers first, and then it is his brothers who see him coming and say, there is this dreamer, and they seek to kill their brother. And then there's a certain point in the middle of it where Reuben does act, Reuben the oldest does act with some integrity and tries to save then another brother, Judah, is scheming. And there's a moment where you think, okay, wow, maybe this is going to turn around. Reuben the oldest says, no, let's not kill him. He's been spared. 
And then later, Judah speaks up and says, what profit is it if we kill our brother? And you think to yourself, maybe it's almost like echoing the words of Jesus. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Maybe he's about to repent, but instead, Judah says, no, he is our brother, our own flesh. Why don't we just get rid of him, but we can profit too and make money from his sale? Joseph is the victim of a brutal plan that has been hatched by unchecked hate, by ongoing and complete jealousy from his brothers. And there are no two ways about it. We read Genesis 37, and a couple of things stand out to us. This is God's story of redemption with his people. He's promised Jacob, who's renamed Israel, that he's going to be the father of many nations. He's going to bless him. All of these promises have been given back to him. And yet we read the entirety of Genesis 37, and you know how many times God has mentioned? Zero. His name never comes up. What we are left with is a family that is persistent in their dysfunction and their hatred and jealousy, a story that seemingly lets this jealousy and rivalry and violent behavior win out in the end. We're left with a father who refuses to be comforted, who believes that his hope is entirely gone and he's going to go down to the grave as nothing but a griever. We have not only the brothers hate winning out in the end, but they continue hiding a lie. You can imagine the seam of them coming back with the robe asking disingenuous questions, watching their own father weep with sadness and then pretending all the while. It makes you wonder if it was difficult for them to hide the jingling of the shekels in their robe as they fake comforted him. And then Joseph, what hope does he have? He's been separated from his land and from his father, who was his protector, and his brothers and his inheritance, and he's been sold off into slavery to a pagan land with a sort of godlike figure, pagan godlike figure of Pharaoh at the head. At this point in the story, you may ask yourself, why is it that Genesis takes so much care and so much time to describe Joseph's story? You may say to yourself, how could this possibly be good? And yet, the reason we take time with the story and the thing that we're going to, to learn, my guess is that many of you know the details, you know that God is active even though He's missing in some ways, and missing in quotes. And what's going to happen, what we're going to see over the next 13 chapters, is that we're going to go from here, here's what humans do. I mean, I think I can say it that plainly, right? Here's what humans do. And we're going to go from Genesis 37 to the end of it, where we took the, the theme, we believe the theme of this entire section, rather than saying foundations, which is the beginning of Genesis, we're going to focus on and we're going to ask God's Spirit to help us to believe in it, to deepen our assurance, our faith in a God who, despite circumstances and sometimes when He seems most absent, still means good. 
It's Genesis 50. Genesis 50, verse 20, is where we take this idea, sort of the title for our, our study together. God meant good. And Joseph gives us those words to his brothers in the midst of all circumstances, when everything seems to be negative and doesn't make any sense, when in all of its raw grossness, the sin of humanity is on display, when every why question has not been neatly bound up and answered, what we're left with is the belief in and the sturdy hope that God means good. And Jacob, in his grief, the brothers with the reality, hopefully the guilt, but the reality of their monstrous behavior, Joseph feeling helpless, God, nowhere in the words of the story, what they're left with is a requirement a necessary requirement to believe that though they don't understand and though difficulty has come and though sin has been allowed to run rampant, that God has not forgotten, that He is not gone. I believe that Joseph's story is the second most remarkable instance in our Bibles of something extremely evil being flipped on its head in a profound way, to reveal something about God that must be dealt with. I say it's the second most because it's the story of Joseph that leads us to think about, and I believe in some ways is a precursor to the death of Jesus Christ. There are a few instances where God is gracious in reminding us that in order for Him to be God, He's going to have to be where we can't not see Him. He's going to have to know what we cannot know. He's going to have to be able to understand what we don't understand. And so we're going to ask questions of Joseph in the same way that you may ask questions, and those who are following Jesus may have asked questions about Jesus' death. Questions like this, is it a good thing that just happened to Joseph? And it's only because God works out things in a way that we can understand, the way His ways are higher than our ways. The only way we can answer that question is in a sort of no, yes. Yes. We can ask the same question. Was it good that Jesus Christ was crucified? Yes. I mean, eternally, yes. But you don't dare say that the death of the Son of God the consequences of our sin, it's a horrible thing. How can it be that simultaneously the most horrific, terrible, sinful moment in life can be flipped on its head by the work of God to be our greatest hope? How can we serve a God so good, so powerful, so mighty, so amazing that He can take horrible circumstances, questions without answers, sin without end. How is it that we serve a God that can turn these things to good? Like Joseph, those who should have been and would have been Jesus' brothers, his nation, his people, forced him into exile to be a wandering sojourner. He says that he came to be a slave. 
It was his very nation, his people that turned on him and betrayed him and sent him to the cross. And what we see in the character and the purpose of God in the cross is evident much the same way in the themes, there's going to be evident in the themes of Joseph, betrayed by his brothers and thrown into a pit and left to die and sent to be a slave. And underneath all of it, the confidence we have is that God was working and God is good. I would say it like this. The story of Joseph. In fact, the gospel itself. You'll know you have the gospel, or maybe I should say it negatively, you maybe don't have the gospel if you do not have a conception of God that allows Him to work when you don't understand. If your faith with God is more or less an ongoing spiritual negotiation whereby He must reveal every step of the way and meet your needs the way that you desire for them to be, need, to be needed, or else you distrust Him, then you've missed it. The story of Joseph is going to teach us that oftentimes God leads by allowing. It does not mean that He's gone. Oftentimes, God will love by letting. He'll let things happen. There will be oftentimes where in order to defeat evil and undo sin, God will let it run its course. And what is tempting, I'm sure what was tempting for Jacob, what is tempting for Joseph, what is tempting for us as we read this story is to abandon, to cry out. In some ways, this is understandable. Jesus himself cries from the cross, why have you forsaken me? But it is the faith of our forefathers. It is the faith of the patriarchs. It is the story of Genesis that informs our understanding of who God is that allows us to traverse the difficulties of life, the suffering that we will face, and to say, though I don't see Him, God is here. Though I don't understand, God understands. Even difficulty. God will ultimately, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you're walking in Him and have submitted yourself to this God, then what you can know is that now and forever, He is only ever working for your good. Now, I want to say a caveat here. This does not mean that everything that happens in life is good. Do you see the clarification that's necessary there? I think sometimes Christians, especially when we get very encouraging to people, we can downplay real suffering as though we told the person, oh, don't you know, that doesn't matter. It's not even sad. Romans 8.28 does not say, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, He turns everything into good. Or He says everything is good. No, no, no. He works all things. And under the all things category, there is treachery, and there is sin, and there is devastation, and there is loss, there is grief, there is difficulty. God is not so small as to simply look at the swath of all humanity and sin and just stamp over the top of it and say, well, now I called it good, so it is. No, God is so profoundly 
gracious, so profoundly wise, so profoundly present that he overcomes evil in its deepest places to bring about good. This means that like Joseph, you are going to have to endure difficulty. He really was hated by his brothers. He really actually was in a pit with no water. He really had to suffer being marched off into slavery. And yet it is the eyes of faith, it is the call of God's plan that is going to make us look back. How is it that we can read Genesis 37 and all of us don't just quit right now? It's because we know the end of the story. It's because we know that God can bring about good even when we don't get it. I want to get as pointed as I can or as practical as I can. Here's what this means. You must be willing to be a Christian when you don't see or feel or understand God. You have to be. There's no other way to do this. We cannot come to God demanding of Him a constant sense of understanding. We don't get ushered into His presence and then offered all that He knows. He is still and remains sovereign, and He is still and remains incomprehensible in many ways. What He offers us is the hope that our scars and our sadness and our confusion and our grief will one day be wrapped up in a way that we can't even fathom or imagine, that one day He'll be able to do more than we could ever ask or think or imagine in Christ, and we will be ushered into glory. That means that one of the most devastating questions, the most real suffering questions, why, It needs to be, even the question why, even the reason that God Himself has given us needs to be submitted to Him. I think that the single greatest reason for people living in a listless, agnostic kind of way in life, maybe all the way to angry atheism, and I'm going to disagree with DC Talk here for a minute. Some of you know what I'm saying, but the single greatest cause of agnosticism or atheism in our world today, just remember the song said that, I think is the unexplainable real suffering in our world. The idea that people feel as though evil marches on and God is not there. Nearly every human being feels that. Every human being carries around with them when they go to pray an entire set of things that if they wanted to, they could plop down in front of God and say, why, how, when, And it is those questions where our faith will be called forth. It's those questions where when someone sweetly walks with God despite not knowing these things, when someone has learned that the answers to their why question cannot be an idol for them, it's when someone walks sweetly with God despite the fact that they can't see and they don't know that we see the greatest work of the Spirit in them. What a mystery, what a gift to actually give oneself up to allow God to be sovereign over things and to know what we don't know. This is what faith looks like. The story of Joseph is remarkable in all of its colorful storytelling and narrative. But most of all, it's remarkable because it 
shows us and pulls back one of the few times, perhaps the most poignant times in all of history, the way that God is there and working and able in a way that we could not imagine. Do you believe that when you don't see, do you believe when there's chapters of your life and you look back and you say, it was hard to see, I didn't see God's name written, obviously, anywhere. Do you believe that He's there and do you believe that He's for you? And you believe that everything that He's given you in Jesus will never be taken away? And you believe that what you knew back then, when you were full of faith and life and love, that He's never changed and He's still here with us? Do you believe that He's working when He hasn't given you the details? Do you believe that one day you could be ushered into His presence with great joy and all of the wise will fall away because you'll be swept up in Him? Like, is He going to be an answer enough? That's the big question that's behind the story of Joseph. And I believe that the work of the Spirit of God in you and in me, the reason that we're here, this world's insane. I mean, you might not be able to tell a story of your siblings throwing you in a pit, but it's insane. And your sin is gross and mine is too. And we don't know and we don't see and sometimes I don't know where God is exactly. But what a wonderful work of the Spirit that we come. What a gift that God stirs in us faith to say, I believe that you're working and I've seen what you're doing and I know that you're good. So I want to invite you, I'm going to pray in a moment, and I want to invite you to again entrust yourself to God's sovereignty, to let go of having to know and to thank Him for working for our good. Let's pray. God, I confess to you that we, we have a lot of whys. Why are we made the way that we're made? Why do I have besetting sin? Why am I angry or why am I jealous? Why do I hurt others? Why have I been hurt? Why natural disasters and why pandemics and why hate and racism and why power struggles? And God, I confess to you all of these things that they're tempting. It could be tempting for us. And when we don't understand, we could, we could blame you for these things. And I thank you this morning. I thank you for the, for the story of Joseph. I thank you for the reality that you are often at work when we don't see. And God, I thank you that you're beyond us, that you're more than we are. Thank you that you know more than we know. You understand more than we understand. I thank you that you have delivered the ultimate sentence to evil and suffering in our world, that one day this will be completely undone. God, I believe that you're able. You're able to carry us through. I pray that we trust that, We'd not be swayed by the difficulties of this world. We look forward to the day, God, when you are revealed in all of your glory. Keep us patient in the meantime. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.